Kindness and goodness. When kindness is at work in a person's life, he or she looks for ways to adapt to meet the needs of others. It is moral goodness that overflows. It's also the absence of malice. While kindness is the soft side of good, goodness reflects the character of God. Goodness in you desires to see goodness in others and is not beyond confronting or even rebuking, as Jesus did with the money changes in the temple, for that to happen. Question Is it your goal to serve others with kindness, or are you too focused on your own needs, desires, or problems to let the goodness of God overflow to others? Does your life reflect the holiness of God, and do you desire to see others experience God at a deep level in their own lives? Join us today as Pastor Rex shares part six, kindness and goodness when unnoticed. We are being like Christ when we show kindness and goodness to those who don't deserve it and who can never repay us. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Grace and welcome to... uh, this time of worship. This past Wednesday, in the city of London, England, Darlene Horton, age 64, she and her husband, Hale, from Tallahassee, Florida. Darlene, her husband, a group of uh, friends were kind of touring around, and they were attacked by a young man, 19 years old. Darlene was stabbed to death, and five others in the group were injured. The Summer Olympics are off to a big start. We saw the celebration and the pageantry of the opening ceremonies, all the American athletes coming in, the, uh, what a celebration, what an anticipation of victories and, and gold medals. But authorities are concerned about security at the Rio Games, uh, because they report 756 shootings, not for the year, but 756 shootings for the month of July alone in the city of Rio. You know, it seems that everywhere we turn today, not just internationally, but locally, we have evidence that the world is increasingly not a very good or not a very kind place. Any realm you look in, whether it's sports or the media or politics or business, there's just not seemingly a lot of uh, tenderness anymore. No, we don't need to look beyond our own households often to see that. Children are at odds against parents, parents against children, husbands against wives, wives against husbands, and often uh, we are most cruel and unkind to those that are actually the closest to us. That's the irony of it all. But what an opportunity Christians have if, if we grow up in Christ and let goodness and kindness become our MO, our character. And that's what God is calling us to as followers of Jesus. Jesus said, by this all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And one of the aspects of that, of course, is goodness and kindness. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. What an encouragement. Express this kindness to the people that are in your orbit, in your life. 
In the book of Colossians chapter 3, we read these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Let it become just like the clothes you put on every day. Let this be a part of who you are. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, obviously, there are times when we're called to be tough and not just tender. We could all say amen to that. Particularly if you're a leader in any sphere, there are times when you have to kind of step up to the plate, be very firm, be solid. There are times to be tough. But, you know, I've observed it's challenging to be tough at the right times and tender at the right times. So therein lies a part of the challenge that we face as we talk about goodness and kindness. How do you pull off that balance in life? I think one of the people who did that pretty well as portrayed in Scripture is the one we call King David. Oh, he knew how to be tough. He was a great military leader and quite an accomplished leader of the country as king. But he also had some stellar moments where he really knew how to be appropriately kind and good. Scripture reads in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and by the way, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up there. You can also follow along on the screens. We read in verse 1, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there's a whole lot packed behind that verse. Let me quickly explain the context. Years before, when Saul, the king of Israel at the time, was still alive, and he was Israel's first king of what is called the United Kingdom, Saul's son Jonathan was best friends with David. And both David and Jonathan knew that David was actually going to become the next king of Israel and replace Jonathan's father. And Jonathan asked him one day, listen, once you come to the kingdom, I'm asking you to show kindness to me and to my family. And so David literally swore an oath that he would do that. Now, in those days, you see, Jonathan was asking this because it was customary when a new king came to the throne that all the previous king's family and relatives, this is brutal, I know, but it's just the reality of that day, they were all executed. Because, you see, they were trying to preclude any sort of coup or any sort of threat to the kingdom. And so David swore to Jonathan, I know I'm going to be the next king. He said, in the Living Bible, it paraphrases it like this, David swore to him with a terrible curse against himself and his descendants should he be unfaithful to his promise. And David didn't just make that promise to Jonathan. He also made it on another occasion to Saul himself. But have you discovered something in life? Boy, I've noticed this. Often the circumstances under which a promise is to be kept are very different than the circumstances under which the promise was made, right? I mean, it's one thing to promise to make those payments when you get a new shiny automobile, to make those payments on the 15th of every month or whatever. 
It's a whole different thing to keep that promise when the car has 45,000 miles, looking a little beat up, and you're not feeling so good about it. It's one thing to promise to be faithful in marriage when you're sitting on the dock at beautiful Lake George with a gorgeous, romantic, moonlit sky above you. It's another thing to keep that promise when you're sitting on aging furniture, when you're weighted down by the oppression of unpaid bills and your spouse doesn't even seem to be particularly encouraging. But that's what makes this so impressive about David. The Bible says in Psalm 15 that God honors the person who keeps his oath, catch this, keeps his oath even when it hurts. And David kept his promise even though the circumstances had changed significantly. He didn't have to, by the way. The two people, Saul and Jonathan, who had heard him make that oath, that promise, were both dead. They had been killed in battle years before. But later in a moment that would define David's kindness and goodness forever, he remembers the promise and he says, look, is there anybody left? Is there anybody out there related to Saul, to Jonathan, that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? David was keeping his word. And he began to do some research. And he discovered that there was a former servant of King Saul, a guy named Ziba. Interesting name. Ziba had been a servant. And we read in verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Now, how did he become crippled? Well, when Mephibosheth, that was his name. I know most of you are going to take that name for your next son, right? Uh, when he was five years of age, the word came back to the palace that both Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, and Saul, his grandfather, had just been killed in battle. So I've already shared the custom. And so the nursemaid of Mephibosheth knew what this meant. She said, we got to get you out of here. We, you got to get out of the palace. It's dangerous. We've got to go hide you somewhere. And so in rushing out, he stumbled and tripped down some steps, and his feet and ankle bones were broken horribly, and they never properly healed. And so for the rest of his life, from the time he was five, for the rest of his days, Mephibosheth walked with a horrible limp. We don't know if he was on crutches. We don't know how he got about, if he kind of scooted or hopped. We don't know how well he could move or how mobile he was. But we want, one thing we know, he was disabled. He was crippled for the rest of his life. And it's almost as though Ziba here, we don't know, but it's almost though he's implying today, but oh yeah, yeah, there's a descendant. There's this guy, but, but he's crippled. Almost as though his disability made him less of a person. He doesn't really matter, he's implying to David. But David immediately asks in verse 4, where is he? Where is he? I want to meet this person. I want to know who he is. 
It does, he doesn't ask how severely is he disabled. He doesn't ask how did it happen, what does he look like. He just asks where is he. You know why? Because gr- those things don't matter. When it comes to kindness and goodness, when it comes to the love of God, it doesn't hinge on the merit or the condition or the attitude of the other person. Love just looks for an opportunity. That's all. Just an opportunity to express itself. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in, of all places, Lodabar. I love that name. It was the name of a little village in ancient Israel, Lodabar. Now, it's not a real good place to be from, if you know what I mean. It's kind of like saying I'm from Leoma, Tennessee. People are like, what? Leoma, where is that? It's at the end of the world. It's, 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 It's not at the edge, but you can see the edge of the world from Leoma. That's kind of the way living in Lodabar was. Lo in Hebrew means no, and debar is the word for pasture. So the word is quite aptly descriptive. Lodabar was a place on the east side of the Jordan River, far from Jerusalem, far from the seat of power, but furthermore, it was a place that was so arid and dry, it had little or no pasture, totally barren. That's where Mephibosheth was hiding out. He was fearful, I think, that if anyone should discover that a grandson of King Saul was still alive, he knew his days would be numbered. We don't know how old he was. Later we find out in the passage he had a son named Micah, so we know he was at least old enough to have a family of his own. Verse 5 reads, so King David had him brought from Lodabar. I imagine that was a terrifying moment for Mephibosheth. He doesn't know what the king's attitude is going to be. One day he has a burly soldier knock on his door. David would like to see you. Come with me. He didn't know what to expect. I believe he was terrified. And verse 6 reads, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Now, this is one of those moments in Scripture. And by the way, I would encourage you as good Bible students, I would encourage you occasionally to try to, as I like to say, put yourself in the sandals of these ancient people. And oh, how I wish we can get inside the mind and the emotions of Mephibosheth at this moment. Now remember, he's been in this palace before. He's still got some memories even though he was so young when he left it for the last time. And the last memory he has is traumatic. He would be a great candidate probably for some kind of behavioral therapy, some kind of counseling, someone to talk with about this trauma. Because he remembers that scream from his nursemaid. He remembers falling down those steps, the the excruciating pain. He remembers the crucible of it all. And now he doesn't know why David has called him. (laughs) All he knows is that his grandfather, Saul, had tried repeatedly to kill David, and David knows that. And he does know that David and his men killed Mephibosheth's uncle, Ishbosheth, again, another stellar name I know you're going to use in your family line somewhere. 
He knows all this, and furthermore, he knows that David somehow has developed a reputation as not really liking people with disability. Now, that was an unjustified reputation. When David was first taking over what later became known as the city of David, it was known as Jerusalem. When he was first taking this over, it was inhabited by a people known as the Jebusites, and uh, they sneered out, you're not going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. They were basically dissing him and mocking him. And in the heat of battle, David responded, then the blind and the lame are my enemies. And the Bible says that from that point on, see, this reputation developed. They had taken what David said in the heat of war out of context, and he had this reputation against the disabled that was unjust. Mephibosheth knew all that. It was all in the rumor mill. This was all common knowledge among the people of the land. So when he comes hobbling in and bows down before David, David says, are you Mephibosheth? I am, he says. And he anticipates that the next words are going to be fatal. I think all of that is going on in his psyche and in his soul, in his consciousness at this moment. Imagine his shock when in verse 7, David says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. (laughs) Mephibosheth was stunned. He's got to be wondering, am I in a dream? He's thinking he's going to be executed. What? And now he's invited to live in the palace and eat at the king's table? That's what makes this such a defining moment for David. Here he is, this powerful, healthy king, and he's stooping down to help someone who appears in the eyes of the world to be just the opposite. What a moment. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is he saying? It's a colloquial phrase of the day that means I'm a nobody. Today we might say I'm the scum of the earth. I'm a zero. That's what the phrase meant in the day. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then it adds parenthetically. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Think of that. Suddenly... Mephibosheth goes from being like a refugee, an outcast, hiding out in Lodabar of all places, to suddenly having about 36 servants at his bidding at any moment. I mean, this guy has just won the lottery. This is the jackpot. David is incredibly good to Mephibosheth, showing amazing kindness. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wow, what a story. I like the way Chuck Swindoll 
summarizes what's happening here. He says, and I quote, picture what life would be like in the years to come at the supper table with David. The meal is fixed. The dinner bell rings, and in comes David's children and the guest. There's Amnon, witty and clever. Then there's Joab, one of David's soldiers, handsome, well-built, walking erect as a valiant soldier. Then comes Absalom, a handsome young man, not a blemish from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And then there's Tamar, the beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later Solomon coming out of the library, studious, brilliant, beautiful people, impressive people, powerful people at the table. And then they hear this, clunk, 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 clunk. And here comes Mephibosheth hobbling along. He humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Oh, how I love the story of Mephibosheth. I love it because it's a story of grace, amazing grace. But you know, there's an unusual epilogue to Mephibosheth's story that I feel I need to share to round this out just a little more and help us all see how extraordinary David's attitude of kindness and goodness was toward this man. Because years later, David himself has his son Absalom revolting against him. And David himself has to flee the city in fear of his own life. And so there's a battle. David loves his son Absalom, but David's soldiers are battling, battling against Absalom's soldiers. And on the way out of the city, as he's fleeing, he asks Ziba, where is Mephibosheth? See, he, he honestly cares for the man. He wants him to be safe. And Ziba answers, he's staying in Jerusalem. Because he thinks that today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. Ziba is saying to David, listen David, Mephibosheth, I, I know you love the kid, but he's turned on you here. He's got these grandiose ideas, David. He thinks now that he's lived in the palace and you and Absalom are fighting, he thinks you're going to kill one another and he believes that he is going to be instated as the new king of the kingdom. David had to be crushed that Mephibosheth would be so ungrateful after all he'd done for it. Maybe you have one or two people in your life like that. It, there's seldom acknowledgement of what you've done. It's always, what have you done for me lately, right? And it seems it never can be enough, and there's never much appreciation and maybe even they turn on you or are critical of you or slander you to someone or stab you in the back. And when David's army defeated Absalom, the king returned to the palace and there was Mephibosheth. There's Mephibosheth after the battle waiting to welcome him. Verse 25 of 2 Samuel 19. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, my Lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. 
and he has slandered your servant to my Lord the king. My Lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my Lord the king. So he's playing a very humble, humble role here. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? In other words, he's just throwing himself on the mercy of David. Now, David was probably thinking, dude, your story's got a few holes in it. You get around places. You could have gotten out of here, but he doesn't go there. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't go there. He just takes Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth at his word, and he gives him graciously another chance. We go on to read in verse 29. The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Mark Twain once said, kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can read. And this is such an intriguing story. I think it sets a beautiful backdrop for just some final application lessons here about kindness and goodness, which is the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to build in our lives. So if you're taking notes, you might want to quickly jot some of these down. Three practical lessons. First of all, I would just want us to all acknowledge up front that kindness and goodness is more than just words. It is action. More than words, it is action. The Bible puts a great emphasis upon not just being a person of words, but being a person of action. Now, words are important, but according to Scripture, we need to back up our words with genuine, authentic, properly motivated actions. Listen to what James writes in James 2. Suppose our brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it, James asks. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And the same could be said of words. Words are fine. Words can be assuring, but God wants to be sure that we understand we need to back it up with action. Now, here's why I stress that so much. I believe that if most of us were surveyed and someone that we trusted asked us, do you consider yourself a kind person? You know what I think? I think overwhelmingly most of us would answer, well, well, yeah, I mean, I know people who are kinder than I am, but yeah, I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a kind person. I really am. But the question is, would our actions, if someone objectively were looking at us, would our actions really back that up? And so it goes beyond words to actions. We write the note. We go and help. We make the visit. We give the gift. We show the kindness in visible, objective ways. The second thing I think that's a practical lesson we can take away from this is that kindness and goodness is more than reacting to the needs we see. It's seeking needs out. Now, again, this is what's so impressive to me about what David did. Listen, the people who heard him make the oath and the promise are dead. 
He could have taken the attitude, look, I I know I said that long ago about showing kindness to the descendants of Jonathan, whoever they might be out there. But listen, if anybody shows up, and we can verify that they're a genuine descendant, you know, hey, listen, I'll be glad to make good on that promise. But that's not what he did. He said, no, I'm going to get proactive about it. I'm going to start searching. I'm going to find a need. I'm going to find someone that I can show this kindness to. I'm so impressed by hundreds of you who do that on a regular basis as you serve through ministries like Grace in Action with any one of our numerous partners in the area. And I know that many of you, because I get the privilege sometimes of hearing your stories and what God is doing through that ministry, you go, some of you on a weekly basis, some on a bi-weekly basis, some several times a week, hundreds of people at Grace are serving in the community. And the reason to me that's so special is because it's an example of what we're talking about here. You're not just waiting around going, hey, listen, listen, if I happen to come across a broken person, yeah, I'll be kind, I'll be good to them. But no, you're going and seeking out opportunities to be kind and good, and I I gotta tell you, I commend you for that. That is incredibly impressive. That's the heart of David. I believe that's the heart of God. And I believe that shows the character of Christ. But there's a third lesson, and that is kindness and goodness is more than giving money. And I wanna warn you, I think this is where it really gets tough for many of us. Kindness and goodness is more than giving money, it's building relationships. Again, David could, even after he found out about Mephibosheth, he said, okay, dude, I hope you're pretty comfortable there in Lodabar. I know it's a pretty God-forsaken place. Man, I don't know why in the world you ever went there. But, okay, whatever. I'm going to send you some money. Make sure you're pretty comfortable for the rest of your days. And I'll listen. I'll have some guards stationed there to make sure that nothing bad happens to you and your family. He could have done that. That would have been a fulfillment in a sense, of his promise. But no, he went further than that. He got some, as we say today, some skin in the game. He got personally involved. Can you believe it? He treated Mephibosheth like one of his own family. My goodness, he brought him into his house. He befriended him. He gave him personal attention. Now, here's why that's so important. And here's why I say this may be the toughest of all. Because I think for many of us, particularly if you're kind of middle-class America, we see throwing money at things as a quick fix. And I understand that. Because, see, here's the deal, just to keep it real. We've got compassion fatigue, amen? I mean, we see needs all over the world. We see it on our computer screen. We turn on the TV. There's more needs screaming at us. We pick up the newspaper. We see an ad locally. Needs, needs, needs. Hurting people. Help, help, help. And so we end up with what I call compassion fatigue. You just can't meet all these needs. And so our default modes become, let's throw some money at. Let's just give, let's give a check. Let's just, let's just. Get it out of our mind. But it's a whole lot tougher when you get some skin in the game and you get personal. I was impressed by this story. A college student reported during my second month of school, I was breezing through a pop quiz one day when I came to an unusual question. The last question read, 
What is the first name of the woman who cleans this school building? That was on the pop quiz. He said, I'd, been the, I'd seen the cleaning woman, but I had no idea what her name was. How could I be expected to know her name? So I left it blank. And before I handed in my test, another student raised his hand and asked, will the last question count toward your grade? Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. And the student said, I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned that her name was Dorothy. Let me ask you, do you have any skin in the game? Do you ever reach out to someone, maybe even someone uh, who's at the church service that you've never met before, someone who may look a little lonely, or maybe someone who doesn't have anyone to go to a meal with and say, hey, come on over to the house. We're going to be watching a ball game, or we're going to watch the Olympics a little bit, or hey, we're going to go out and grab a bite to eat. It's nothing fancy, but we'd love to have you join us. Now, be sure you ask your spouse before you do this, okay? Ask your spouse before you make this invitation, but we are called to get involved in people's lives. David didn't just invite Mephibosheth to sleep in the palace one night. He said, you're always going to eat at my table. Now, before we close this sermon down and, and get all, you know, uh, gooey-eyed and our hearts aflutter about what a kind and wonderful king David was when he did this, I believe that for the last just three or four minutes here, we need to get another opinion on this. I do. I mean, is kindness and goodness all it's really cracked up to be? Not according to Frederick Nietzsche, the atheistic philosopher of the 1800s. You know what he would say of David? He would say David was a number one, gold-plated, class A fool. For showing kindness. In fact, Nietzsche taught that kindness was weakness. He hated Christianity because he hated kindness. He said, kindness weakens the strong by siphoning off their creative energies into the poor and oppressed. In other words, into the Mephibosheths of the world. Instead of letting them unleash their energies on advancing civilization. Nietzsche said, if we can wipe out kindness from the world, we can ultimately have a race of supermen, he taught. If we can just get rid of kindness. The poor will die out, the weak will die out, and the strong will get stronger. And so Nietzsche said that kindness is weakness. But was Nietzsche right? Many today would buy his philosophy hook, line, and sinker and say, you know what, you're just being naive. You're a simpleton if you show kindness to people. Those people are just going to use you and abuse you the first chance they get. Was Nietzsche right? Or could it be, could it be that Nietzsche was wrong? Could it be that the exact opposite is true? Could it be that kindness is an awesome feat of supernatural strength? I mean, after all, who was David's role model? We read it earlier in one of the passages. He said, to whom can I show God's kindness? God's kindness. 
And my friend, you're never more kingly, never more godly, never more strong or heroic than when you're showing kindness to someone. Can I tell you where Nietzsche went wrong? With all due respect. Where Nietzsche went wrong is he divided the world into the weak people and the strong people. Mistake. Because the truth is, we're all Mephibosheths. That's the truth today. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your bank account says. I don't care how much power you have in this world or prestige or what title you possess. We all stumble and fall. We all limp. And we all need someone to come along and pick us up. Where would you be? Where would I be if someone had not come along and shown kindness and goodness to us and lifted us up? Jesus Christ entered into the pain of this world and showed eternal kindness through his grace to us. And now he invites us to enter into the pain of other people, to reach down into that pit and lift them out. And so I close with these words. A man fell into a pit. He couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, you know, it's logical that someone would fall into the pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. A rock hound asked him if there were any rare specimens in the pit. A news reporter wanted an exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. A Calvinist said, if you'd been saved, you'd never fallen in that pit. An Arminian said, you were saved and you still fell in the pit. A charismatic said, just confess you're not in that pit, brother. A realist said, now that's a pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. The IRS man asked if he was paying taxes on the pit. A county inspector asked him if he had a proper permit to dig the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An odds maker from Las Vegas said, chances are anyone could fall into a pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. But Jesus, but Jesus, seeing the man in the pit reached down, took him by the hand, and lifted him out of the pit. And dear friends, Jesus Christ calls us to do the same. That is kindness. Father, thank you for the amazing example of King David so long ago, and that the power of that story still speaks so personally to us in this moment. Wow. Only you could do that, God. Thank you, Lord, for what you're teaching us about growing up in Christ in this series. Thank you that you want to build character in us, character that's solid, 
that has stability and substance and that lasts. Oh, how we want that. Help us right in our own sphere of relationships, in our neighborhoods and workplaces. Help us right here in our communities to show the goodness and the kindness of God to people that others don't even notice and people who could never repay us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.